Uh, if you have a Bible or Bible app, we're going to be in the book of Exodus chapter 15. So uh, you can go ahead and turn that way. The book of Exodus is the second book in your Bible. should be pretty easy to find. And I uh, have the privilege of launching into a new series that will be about the next six weeks or so, um, entitled Lessons from the Desert. And around the office, we've simply been referring to it as the Desert Series, which apparently is easily misread as the Dessert Series, which, <laughs> I'll be honest, I was a little disappointed when I figured out that we weren't talking about desserts. Um, I would have packed this place out, I'm sure, but we're going to talk about the desert, one S. So um, a little bit of backstory before we come to Exodus 15. And uh, if you know the story of God and his people as it's told in the Bible, you'll remember that uh, fairly early on in the story, in the book of Genesis, God calls this man by the name of Abram and makes a promise, a covenant with him, that one day... Through Abram's family, God was going to uh, bless the entire world. And so God was calling Abram to begin this family, which would eventually grow into the nation of Israel, and that those people would be God's people, that he would be with them, he would be their God, they would live closely with him and according to his ways, that they would experience the blessings of a life lived close to God, and then they would become a blessing to the nations. So they were blessed to be a blessing. Essentially, you could sum up the initial covenant that God makes with Israel as I, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will bless you and make you a blessing. He was calling them to become a nation of what the Bible calls priests, of mediators of his presence and his blessing to the world around them. In really simple terms, what that would mean is that the nation of Israel was called to be a people who sought to live for the common good that they would be a blessing to the nations, that their presence in the world would be, God, would be good news. They would be mediators of God's presence, and so if your neighbor was an Israelite, you're stoked because he's blessed to be a blessing. So if he has a hot tub, you have a hot tub, right? Workers, mediators, ambassadors of the common good. That's the deal that God makes with Abram. Eventually, Abraham's family grows up to the nation of Israel, and down the road, they, found, they find themselves in the nation of Egypt, where they are enslaved and oppressed under Pharaoh, who is the worst human character in the story of the Bible up until this point. Terrible place to be. And then God raises up this guy by the name of Moses, who we now know looks like Christian Bale, thankfully. And Moses is chosen by God to be the one who will lead his people, Israel, out of captivity in Egypt. And so you know the story. Uh, God <clears throat> kind of goes, goes to battle with, with Pharaoh, and, uh, and Pharaoh has this hard heart, and so God sends this series of horrible plagues upon Egypt, and it ultimately culminates at the Passover, which uh, meant that every firstborn child in, the, in every family in Egypt would be killed. And so God is waging war against this horrible, evil, oppressive em emperor, 
and eventually, as the story goes, uh, he folds and Moses leads the people out of Israel. They cross through the Red Sea miraculously. And on the other side of the sea, as Ben mentioned a moment ago, the sea crashes down on all the Egyptian soldiers. And on the other side, we have the first worship song in the Bible. The first time where we have a group of God's people singing together in response to something that God has done that's great and history-changing. And so that's where Exodus 15 picks up. And I want to go now to uh, verse 22 of the book of Exodus chapter 15. And uh, we'll pick up our story and start our series there. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went in to the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. And this is why the place was called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Yeah, we'll stop there for now. So they've been delivered out of Egypt, passed through the Red Sea. Now they find themselves wandering in the desert, led by God's appointed man, Moses. They wander for three days, scorching hot heat, and they're thirsty. So they come to this place called Mara, where there's this spring. They're stoked, right? You find this pool of water in the desert, and they begin to drink of it, and they find that it's bitter. Not like a good hoppy IPA kind of bitter, like brackish, right? The water's gone bad, like you haven't had a drink in three days, and you still can't drink it, okay? So it's undrinkable, possibly diseased. It's bad water. And so it says that the people began to grumble, saying, what are we to drink? So three days earlier, they're having this massive musical moment in the desert, praising God, celebrating his power and his love and his sovereignty and his victory, his faithfulness to his promises, his covenant. And now three days later, they find themselves without water and grumbling. So welcome to the desert. <clears throat> when we talk about the desert for the next six weeks, here's what we're talking about, and you can put this slide up. The desert is the place where our perceived lack of abundance produces anxiety and brings out the worst in us. So most of us won't find ourselves literally stranded in a desert, looking for food and looking for water. But that doesn't mean we're unfamiliar with the desert, does it? Many of us find ourselves at different seasons in life in this place where it feels like we don't have what we need, and not only that, we don't even know where to find what it is that we need. And the response within us is this thing called anxiety. And it begins to flesh itself out in the worst possible ways, the worst possible expressions of who we are. And for them, it's grumbling, it's complaining, it's doubting and disbelieving in the presence and provision of God. 
But for us, anxiety takes lots of different forms. When we're in that place where we're fearful that we won't get what we need and we're, we're, it's been exposed that we don't even know how to get what we need. Sometimes it takes the form of grumbling, arguing, complaining, exposing a sense of entitlement. But other times it brings out anger or, as is referred to in this passage, bitterness or hatred. Sometimes it causes us to become greedy people. Other times, instead of kind of ramping us up, some of us, our response is to go down, to go in, to go backwards, to withdraw, to get quiet and passive and lazy. Whatever it is, the desert is the place, be it financial, spiritual, emotional, relational, where our perceived lack of abundance produces anxiety and brings out the worst in us. See, here's what's interesting. In the story of Egypt and Israel, you could summarize that whole relationship through this phrase. The myth of scarcity and a liturgy of abundance. It's the words of Walter Brueggemann. And the idea is that when Israel was living under the oppressive rule of Pharaoh in Egypt, Pharaoh was the first person to introduce this idea of the myth of scarcity. Because there was a famine in the land. That's how Israel got there in the first place. They were looking for food. So there's a global crisis. There's not enough food. And Pharaoh is the first person in the history of global economy to stand up and say, there's not enough for everybody, so I must have everything. And that's the environment that Israel had been enslaved in and nurtured in for, for centuries. Buying into the myth of scarcity, that there's not enough for everyone, so I need everything. Do you see how there's this anxiety that lies beneath the surface of all that? I don't know if I'm going to be okay, if I'm going to have enough, if I'm going to have what I need. And so I begin to, to gather, to collect, to hold, to grasp whatever I can. Now the problem is, when Israel begins to buy into the myth of scarcity, what does that do to their ability to live out the covenant that God had invited them into? They were blessed to be a blessing, called to be a nation of priests who sought after the common good for the whole world. They were called to be a generous people, a faithful people, a loving people, a people who represented God to the nations. But when they bought into the myth of scarcity, their ability to seek the common good and be a blessing to the world completely fell apart. Because they were no longer able to free themselves up to think about loving their neighbor and demonstrating the goodness of a life with God to the world because they had bought into the myth that I need to first and foremost, focus on getting my own needs met, accumulating wealth and goods and whatever else so that I can be safe and comfortable. And so you have the myth of scarcity. On the other side, what you have in the Bible from Genesis 1 through is God's liturgy of abundance, meaning a picture of God that would cause us to worship him 
for the richness of the life that he invites us into. When he creates the world, at each point he says, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. The earth is full of life and beauty and everything good. And that's the place where God had originally invited Israel to live. A place where he was with them and that was enough. He was their God. They were his people. They were blessed by his presence and by his faithfulness to them. And as they transition from Egypt out into the wilderness, they are transitioning from a place where the myth of scarcity dominates to a place where God is now inviting them or calling them back into a covenant, a liturgy of abundance. And it's a tough transition. And we see that it takes about three days for them to fall back into the old mindset that they had learned from Pharaoh's Egypt. So anxiety takes all different forms. In all different ways, all different kinds of people. It's our natural response to a threat, whether it's real or imagined, And it's not entirely a bad thing, right? Anxiety is a startle reaction that causes us to know we need to pay attention or respond or react in a way to protect ourselves or those around us. God's actually created us with that urge for survival. But we all know that anxiety can become much more than that. It can become something that actually dominates our lives, whether we realize it or not. It can become prolonged and intense, The word anxiety actually comes from the root word meaning to choke. It's that feeling that I'm gasping for air. That I don't know if I'm going to be okay. And all I can think about in this moment is getting to the surface to get a breath of air. So we're talking about it in these big, epic, biblical proportions. Just bring it down to our level. A couple days ago... Over the holidays, we had a lazy morning around the house, and I was cooking up these little sausage patties for our kids for breakfast. Um, I don't know why our kids are crazy about sausage. Something about salted meat just, like, pushed their hot buttons. So they're sitting at the table. I bring out uh, this plate with these little sausage patties, and they dive in. And then within seconds, literally, this whole drama unfolds around the table. Like, hey, he got more than I did, or I only got two, or Mila's eating all of them. And it's like this Greek tragedy unfolds at the breakfast table. Like, and I walk in from the other room, I go, you guys, I have two more plates of sausage. Like, there's plenty for everyone. And what do the kids do? They all look at each other and just start laughing, Right? Because they realize how ridiculous it was that they're fighting over something that there's tons of. The myth of scarcity, the liturgy of abundance. And so, as we walk through whatever deserts we find ourselves in, places of need, places of panic, we don't feel like our needs are getting met, we find all different kinds of ways to deal with that. We, like the Israelites that are 
dying from thirst, or feel like they are at least, we go, I need something to, to fulfill the thirst of my soul. I need something to make me whole, to make me satisfied, to help me truly live. And so we can choose a million different things in our day and age. What are some of the things that we turn to, hoping that they will be the remedy to that anxiety we feel? Give me a couple examples. What are some of the places we look? TV in the Netflix era. That is just so easy, isn't it? TV provides us a place to escape from the problems and the pressures of the world we face. The internet, we can get on social media. And I don't have to think about my dumb little life. I can think about all the great lives of everybody around me. Food, somebody said, right? Food's not just food for most of us, is it? It's, it's something more than that. It's a place that we look for, for comfort, for hope. Where else? Yeah, addictions to anything, right? To drugs, to alcohol, to computers, to whatever it is, video games. All these places. And they're not all bad things, are they? There's nothing wrong with food or, or TV or whatever in and of itself. The problem is when that becomes the place I look, hoping that it's going to fix what's wrong with me. And it just creates a terrible downward spiral, doesn't it? I've got to confess I'm something of an Apple fanboy, right? And I know there's a few of you out there. Um, geek out on Apple products, that sort of thing. So the, the latest, greatest coming out in the next couple months is the new Apple Watch. Right? Got a picture of it here. Um, has, anybody, has anybody seen any of the, the promo stuff for this thing? Pretty crazy, right? Um, here's, here's what you'll notice. If you watch the promo films for the Apple Watch, there's two primary promises that Apple makes to its potential customers. And they're the two images on the left. The first is that it's going to help you live a fitter, healthier life. Okay, So it's got this technology built into it that can measure your calorie consumption and your activity and how much time you spend standing versus sitting each day. And the pictures are obviously these just super ripped athletes, you know, doing crazy like CrossFit stuff wearing this Apple Watch. And you're just thinking, man, that's what I need. Like if I had that watch, <laughs> I would look like that. So Apple promises that if you get this watch, you're going to look like that. Be healthier, happier, more fit. The second one in the middle there, and they, they use the language over and over in the, in the promo film, is more intimate and authentic connection. Okay? So it's a new way to connect with your friends. Using technology, you can draw a little shape or a, write a little message on your watch and flick it over to your friend. You can actually even send your heartbeat to your friends so they know what you're feeling when you think about them, right? <laughs> And so they use the language of intimate and authentic connections. So that's what Apple is selling, saying if you buy this watch, you're going to be healthier and happier, and you're going to be more intimately and authentically connected to the people around you. Okay? So what they've diagnosed, and I would say rightly, is that their target customer base are people who are feeling unhealthy and isolated. 
They're fat and lonely. (laughs) And they're saying we have the solution. But let's go back a step further. Why are we fat and lonely? Well, because we spend all our time in front of screens. (laughs) Instead of going out and doing CrossFit or running or biking, I just sit in front of my computer and binge watch Netflix. And instead of actually going out and hanging out with my friends, I just text or tweet or Facebook or whatever it is. And so part of the problem behind our condition is these technological devices. And so Apple comes along and says, we've got the answer. It's another technological device. Your problem is that you can't just have a screen in your pocket or in your hand. You actually need to have it attached to your body. So the problem is technology, and Apple's solution is more technology, more invasive, more integrated into your life. Now, I don't know if they actually believe any of that or they're just trying to sell watches. I'm not here to bash them. Um, I probably won't buy one. But the idea is that this is the myth of scarcity played out, isn't it? We're desperate to be the version of ourself we imagine, whether it's the healthy, fit, popular, connected, whatever it is. They know that we're desperate for that. And so they say, here's a solution. Just spend 400 bucks, buy this sweet watch, and you'll have the life you want. But it's a crazy downward spiral. Because what am I going to do about the problems that this watch creates for me? I need the next device. I need the next thing. It's the myth of scarcity. And so I don't know what it is that produces anxiety in you. I don't know if it's external circumstances related to work or finances or relationships or if it's the internal state of your heart, that inability to have a healthy relationship with yourself, that disparity between who you are and who you want to be that causes anxiety. But either way, we find ourselves wandering through the desert, grumbling, stressed out, worried, and grasping hopelessly for something that will fill our broken hearts. And so Israel is at that place. What does God do in response to the grumbling of the people? Go back to verse 25. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There, the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them to put, to, to, and for them and put them to the test. Verse twenty-six. He said, "If you listen carefully to the Lord your God, and do what is right in His eyes, if you pay attention to His commands and keep all His decrees." I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. So, in response to Israel's anxious grumbling, Moses cries out to God. 
And God shows up in a really strange way that I won't even really try to explain by showing Moses a piece of wood and having him throw it in the water and the water's miraculously transformed from bitter, brackish, undrinkable to good, sweet, drinkable water. What's God doing in that moment? God's walking in and going, there's plenty of sausage for everyone. (laughs) Quit freaking out. Quit arguing. Quit grumbling. Quit complaining. Quit letting your anxious, negative emotions control your day-to-day attitude and response. There's plenty for everyone. I am with you. I am your covenant God. You are my people. I have promised to bless you and make you a blessing. You don't need to freak out. You don't need to go looking all around, wandering and hoping that the next thing will be the thing. I am your God. I will provide for you. And so God is actively confronting their belief in the myth of scarcity and calling them back into a liturgy of abundance where even though there appear to be no viable life support systems in the world around them, even though they appear to be in great need, God says, I'm with you. I will provide for you. You are my people. We have a covenant. You don't need to freak out. He's calling them back to live in the abundance of life with him. And what I want to call your attention to is that at the end of verse 26, God makes an autobiographical statement about his nature. So anytime you're reading in the Bible and you hear God beginning to describe who he is and what he's like, pay close attention. That's the most important thing we can glean from the scriptures is God's self-revelation. And so what he reveals in this whole lesson, this whole message, is I am the Lord who heals you. That's what he wants them to hear. So that's our first lesson from the desert. He doesn't say I'm the Lord who can magically make a stick turn a pond into good water. He doesn't even say, I'm the Lord who will always change your circumstances to make you more comfortable. He says, I don't want you to get caught up on the water as a means to the end. He says, here's what I want you to see. I am the Lord who heals you. So here's the first lesson from the desert, the one that was just up. What God did for the waters of Marah he wants to do for you. Do you see how that, what, that's what God's getting at? He takes this bitter water and he transforms it into something that's sweet. And so the point isn't that God's always going to hook you up with sweet stuff. The point is that God wants to meet you in the desert and do the same thing in your life that he did for that pool of water. He wants to do for you what he did for the waters at Mara. He wants to meet you 
in the desert, in the place of your anxiety, in the unpleasant circumstances or whatever it is you're facing, and harness that moment. Not just to change the circumstances around you, but to actually begin to change you. So God says, I am the Lord who heals you. That's what you want to know. That's what he wants us to know. And so when we find ourselves in these desert kind of places, which we'll be talking about for the next six weeks, based on today's lesson, we basically have two choices, right? We can either follow the way of Israel, who believing the myth of scarcity chose to wallow in anxiety, or we can actually look to the example of Moses, who's believing the liturgy of abundance, and he chooses, how does he respond? Instead of grumbling, what does he do? Verse 25, then Moses cried out to the Lord. And so Moses' cry to the Lord is an expression of his active trust in the character and nature and promises of God. Saying, God, it looks like there's nothing out here and it's easy to buy into the myth of scarcity, but I believe in you. I believe in who you are. I remember what you've done. I remember and trust your promises about what you're going to do. And so Moses turns and cries out to the Lord. And then he takes the stick and throws it in the water. And all I would say is that apparently Moses' active faith took the form of obeying God even when it didn't make any sense. And he latches on to the character and the nature of God, saying, I don't get what's going on here. I don't know how these thirsty people are going to be satisfied but I know that you are here and you are enough. So Moses cries out to God, trusts him even when it doesn't make sense, and allows him, himself, Moses, to be transformed in the midst of the desert. And at the end of the story, God leads him to Elam, this beautiful oasis, desert springs, palm trees, and it makes you kind of think, I think God probably could have just told them to go there when they were back at Mara. He could have said, oh yeah, this, this water's bad. Just go a little bit further. You're going to like it. But instead, God meets them in the desert, meets them in the place of their anxiety, and uses it as a moment to demonstrate what it is that he wants to do in them. got a couple minutes left, so I'll, I'll just preach the gospel. In verse 26, if you look closely, there's actually a set of conditions attached to God's invitation to Israel to come be healed. It's an if-then statement. So he says this, If his people listen carefully to the Lord and do what's right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, so if you do those four things, then God says, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Okay, so that's the deal God makes there at Mara. 
listen carefully, do what's right, pay attention to my commands, and keep all my decrees. If you can do that, God says, then I won't uh, unleash my justice and wrath on you the way I did on Egypt. How did that go for Israel? If you know the story, <laughs> does, does that look like what they did from this point on? Um, you, would be, you would have a hard time even making the case that they even tried to do that. Like things just get worse and worse as far as Israel's faithfulness to the covenant. They don't do any of that stuff. They continue to grumble and to disobey and to worship false gods. And we could blast Israel, but let's say if, the, if any of this has anything to do with us, how are we doing? Can any of us say, yes, this is the way I've always lived my life? I always do all these things perfectly. Israel can't and we can't either. And so that creates a pretty big problem because God said the only way you're going to be spared from Egypt-like plagues is by doing this. And Israel didn't do it, and we certainly don't do it either. And so was God just bluffing? Was it kind of just a sketchy parental tactic to get his kids to obey that he didn't actually intend to follow through? It creates something of a crisis for because this is a conditional statement. And, he, and he's not just talking about, or I'll be kind of bummed. He says, no, the plagues of Egypt will be unleashed on you. And remember, the climax of those plagues happened at Passover. The slaughter of every firstborn son. So was God just bluffing? Well, we know that as the story unfolds, God doesn't unleash these kinds of plagues on his people. But there is a time and a place in their future but in our past where God keeps this promise, where God is faithful to the conditions of his covenant and where the sins of Israel and yours and mine must be accounted for. And it wasn't us or our kids that would be killed, but whose kid was it? It was God's firstborn, his one and only son, on that horrible Passover weekend. And here's what's crazy. Jesus is the one Israelite, the one human, who actually did this. And yet he's the one firstborn son who takes the shame and the guilt and the punishment of our failure to do this. And so what we have on the cross is Jesus, the Son of God, taking on our sin and our rebellion, our unwillingness to live life close to God and under his commands, and he absorbs it, and he dies, taking what we deserve. 
And at the same time, Jesus gives us what he deserves. He gives us his record of doing all these things. He gives us his right relationship to God. And 2 Corinthians says that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. God kept this promise, but in a way that none of us ever saw coming because it was way more costly to him than to anyone else. And so this one question then remains. This one invitation if God has given to us what only his son deserves, that means this promise stands for us today. And I would just give you this question. God is asking, will you let me heal you? I am the Lord who heals you. I have forgiven your sins. I have made you whole. I have brought you out of your slavery to sin and death in Egypt. And I want to meet you in this desert, in this life, in this real dirty life where you live. And I want to do for you what I did for the waters of Marah. Will you let me heal you? Ben and Kelly are going to come and share a song with us. It's a song that Ben recently wrote for our body to sing together. And it basically asks this same question. That when you find yourself in a place of anxiety, where all viable life support systems are stripped away and you're reduced to the basic elements of trust, what are you going to do? Will you buy into the myth of scarcity or will you receive a liturgy of abundance? Will you look from, for, from thing to thing to thing or will you receive the fullness of life that God has offered us in Christ? Will you pray with me? Father, the desert is no fun. And uh, I've walked through them and I know that my brothers and sisters here have as well some really, really hard ones. And some of us are here today in a place where we simply can't see a way forward, where we simply can't see how anything good could come from the messed up circumstances or situations we find ourselves in today. Father, would you give us the faith of Moses to turn and to cry out to you from the desert? Would you do in us what you did for the water at Mara? Would you meet us here in these desolate places? Would you transform us here and now? And would you help us to receive your healing with faith and with gratitude that we may become the kind of people who live as a kingdom of priests, who become the kind of people this world needs most, seeking the common good, loving our neighbors, even loving our enemies in your name. 
God, would you free us up? Would you send us out with that sense that we have been loved and saved and healed, that you are good and that you are with us? We trust you in Jesus' name.